Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oils with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, more than we know, we this day need eyes to see and ears to hear. And by your grace and for your praise, we would see Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're uh, new to a church that uh, seeks, as UPC does, to follow Jesus, uh, whether you're skeptical or whether you consider yourself uh, an old hand. Uh, We're glad you're here, and I hope that my teaching this morning might show each of us uh, that Jesus is so much more than any of us can readily, readily grasp, that there's really not near as much difference between those who are newcomers and those of us who think we've got it together. Because all it takes is having our eyes opened anew to some aspect of his greatness. And our mouths stop. And our ears do open. I begin this way because if what Jesus and his early disciples say, he about himself and they about him, is true then that's truly the case. We're always, every day, only a small step away from being amazed and filled with wonder. 
And if we forget that, if we've never known that, if we don't begin to long for that, then we're missing a lot about who Jesus is. The reason that Jesus causes so much trouble as well as brings so much blessing and ultimately, as we've talked about already, when the new age comes and heaven and earth are made new, he'll bring great blessing. But the reason he also stirs up so much trouble, I mean, the world is never far away, particularly the elite and the powerful who long for power. And uh, this is a quick aside, it's free, it's not part of this sermon, but uh, as we're in an election year, don't think right-left. Think arrogant, condescending, wanting control and wanting more of the money, and those who love their neighbors and care about their neighbors as themselves. And it doesn't matter what labels on the outside of the bottle, it matters what's in the bottle and what spills out when people get jarred. But sooner or later, the world is going to be jarred by Jesus. And I say to you who are brothers and sisters in Christ, I and you are in need of being jarred by Jesus, or we will be arrogant towards our neighbors. And that's a large part of what our text this morning is about. There's no comparison to Jesus. He's the king, whether we want it or not, he's the king of those who don't want a king. And I've been in higher education in one form or another for so long that uh, uh, I know I still need to be educated. I guess the education's working. Uh, If you think you don't, then you've lost your way. A couple of quick events in my beginnings as a deliberate Christ follower at Northwestern University in Evanston uh, that are why I'm beginning this message this way. I had begun for the first time in my life uh, to talk about Jesus. And I looked for ways uh, to talk to Jesus to my professors. And I'll never forget uh, uh, one of the professors very respected in the communication department uh, I was having a conversation with her. Uh, She was wonderful to talk with and and learn from. And and she asked me this interesting question. We've got enough crew people in the church that uh, this will make sense to you. She said, why do you who are involved with crew use the word share so much? Uh, Share the gospel. Share Christ. I thought it was a curious question because that's just the way we talked. That's insiders, outsiders, causes problems in all kinds of ways in the world. But at the time, I didn't understand why as a communications professor and a fairly well-read woman that she found that word interesting. And looking back, I understand she not only found it a new phrase to her, but wondered how it fit with the New Testament language of proclaim and preach and tell of a person, of an event, of a coming, of an incarnation. The other professor, uh, some of you know this name, uh, some of you younger, uh, unless you watch uh, uh, 
the old movies channels uh, won't, but uh, she was Charlton Heston's sister, or he was her brother. She was every bit as gifted uh, as he. And she was one of my favorite profs. I'd written a, an analysis paper on some pieces, some poems from the British poet George Herbert, a lot of which deal with Christ. And I'd found a way to speak of the gospel and of assurance of knowing Christ in my analysis and application of meaning. We had to do oral performances uh, of the poems. And thankfully, she liked a number of things in the paper. It was hard to get above a B in her class, and I complied. But of my knowing Christ, she politely responded in writing on the paper, wondering if I wasn't being a bit smug. Thinking I could be so sure, have assurance of something so beyond us as the greatness of Christ. I think that's bothered me more about myself every one of the 50 years or so that's gone by since that time at Northwestern. Because while I was trying to share with her, uh, she was saying, how can you be sure? And I didn't get to have the conversation which, with her which, with, which I wanted to have. But the thing that it ought to drive me and you to is that unless Jesus is who he says he is and is totally different from every other figure on the face of the earth, and unless he says we can know him and be sure and tells us how, then Lila Heston was absolutely right in her challenge to me. And so there's nothing to be arrogant about for our religion, for our wisdom, for our understanding, because believer and unbeliever are dependent on the same thing, the reality of who Jesus is, and of him by his spirit and his word to do the work. That brings us to our text. You heard it read a few minutes ago which begins on an ultimate subject. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. I've heard and read a lot of things about the parable of the ten virgins that forget that it's about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. We start talking about all other kinds of things. And what are we talking about? Uh, if you look at the title and the outline, we're talking about being wise or foolish. We're talking about being wise, not foolish. We're talking about believing and receiving and delighting in the coming King. First heading, context, the coming of the King and the kingdom. Matthew 24 and 25, we're not going to do much here. I encourage you to read chapter 24 and the rest of chapter 25 this afternoon. Somebody said to me when I said something like that another week, they're not going to do that. Well, maybe some will. I hope you will, because it will help you not just hear a few thoughts in a sermon, but one of my goals as I teach and preach the Word of God is to teach you how to study the Word of God, that this isn't just stuff we make up, but it's in the flow, the melodic line, the only really clear meaning of the text. But in Matthew 23, if you're just looking at it, Jesus makes his final teaching visit to the temple and delivers a strong rebuke 
to the religious leaders of Israel. And they're going to be finally ready, the majority of them, to kill him soon for daring to proclaim the words of his and their prophets and applying them to the present. And as he and the disciples are leaving the temple, they're going back up the road onto the Mount of Olives to the east. And I've been on that road, and it's an amazing thing to look now at the Dome of the Rock, but the temple area compound, and to look down upon it from above. And the disciples, and you'll have to read what Jesus said that led them, uh, at least we can wonder about why they made the comment, uh, they point out the amazing buildings of Herod's glorious temple and the surrounding buildings of the compound, and, and look down at it and point to say, Jesus, you know, look at this, and maybe thinking of the future and his promises and their part in it. But here are Jesus' words to his disciples. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn down. And in AD 70 with Titus and the Roman legions, that happened. And the only thing that is there is some of the lower outside walls, the original stones of Jerusalem of that period. And how like the disciples we are, uh, at least they were distracted from Jesus' words by a structure that God gave some of the plans for. Um, I'm only a little bit like Jesus, some of you have noticed that. Uh, I hope some of my friends would say I'm still growing. But I found myself thinking these temple kinds of things in the fall of 2000. 20. Anybody remember 2020? Uh, it was October, and Mary Nell and I had flown up to Boston to interact with the church about whether I should be the one to do their interim senior pastorate. And I lived in Cambridge and ministered in Cambridge at MIT and Harvard from 76, uh, 70, uh, from uh, 69 in the spring uh, to July of 76. And as I rode or walked past the buildings of MIT and Harvard, where the church I was talking to, from which the church I was talking with had a number of students and even some professors, and, uh, and I was so torn praying for and trying to evaluate uh, from my side whether I should do that interim if I was asked, uh, for those churches that were trying to follow Jesus and reach into those communities. We ought to be torn in a happy hard tension even as we think of ministering at UCF as we've already prayed, praise God, this morning, that we might. Uh, there's so much to be thankful for in those universities to encourage and to support, but in so many ways uh, there's so much that's totally man-centered, arrogant. They're temples. And it's, it's worse every decade until God turns it around. When I was doing my Ph.D. work at LSU, I never quite got the dissertation done, so uh, God knew I didn't need to brag. But my minor professor was Dr. Charles Bigger, chair of the philosophy department at LSU in Baton Rouge for decades. And Dr. Andrew King, my chair of the communications school, uh, used to say he loved to go to faculty meetings at LSU that when Dr. Bigger was there. 
because it was already the day when all the money from science and engineering was ruling the university. Presentism, what we can build, our temples. And he said it was so fun to watch Charles Bigger as one of the department chairs of the university be quiet for 40 minutes or an hour and a half and slice and dice in 30 seconds everything that had been done and basically tell them that they weren't a university. They didn't even know what it meant. They were a monoversity. They didn't know how to integrate any one field to another field. And this wasn't Christian, non-Christian stuff. This was just academic truth. I think uh, Charles Bigger, who knew so much about the past and wasn't a presentist, or as C.S. Lewis would say, a chronological snob for the present, uh, he would have been canceled by now in any major university. But I count the hours one-on-one in his study at LSU, some of the most rich times of my life. Wisdom from a man who wanted to learn from everyone and fit it together. But today we have in our culture no foundations on which to integrate anything. They're monoversities. We're monoversities. Our elitists won't even define what a human is, so their priests and their priestesses teach people to make up themselves on their own, ignore their physical bodies, spread confusion, despair, even as they increase the wealth and cultural influence of the elite universities. And even as I say that, I want to go back and say, but they're beautiful. <laughs> There's so many wonderful things. We ought to be giving thanks. Don't go out of here and say, David said, be down on the universities and down beyond learning. How in the world do we do both at the same time? We love Jesus and we follow him and we become like him. And Jesus' warnings of judgment are fitting and it won't be much of a task Remember this about Jesus. It won't be much of a task for God and Jesus to bring the arrogant, those of us who think we are elite and special, to bring us down. I mean, do you know how quick the proud of the earth will fall on their face and shut their lips? And God forbid that Jesus' people should be among them. The task of Jesus and those who would live in him, by him, and for him is not simple or easy. Pay attention to his words of beauty and grace and yet his strong warnings. The context of Jesus' Mount of Olives teaching in Matthew 23, and I'm almost done with this point, is complex. But if you think of it in terms of Jesus' warnings to his disciples, it will help you. Number one, Jesus is saying, in the chaos... Don't be deceived or distracted by all that's going on around you and will go on around you. Number two, don't be afraid. Because Christ Jesus, your bridegroom, your shepherd, your king, your friend, is your rest and your peace and hope in any storm. Therefore, thirdly, don't abandon your master, shepherd, savior, friend. And we can be distracted by so much. Uh, I need to be careful of time. Just checking the clock here in my... Thinking of crew, I thought back on this text uh, and not being distracted to when Hal Lindsey had not yet written the late great planet Earth. For those of you who don't know what that book is, it was the million seller about end times and the pre-trib, uh, pre-millennial rapture. Uh, 
big, 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 big book. He was on crew staff. And my regional director, Bill Hogan, was a friend of Hal Lindsey, and he asked Hal when he came out with the book, uh, Bill was a PCA or is a PCA. Uh, he said, how, how did you decide on this pre-trib, pre-mill rapture uh, so dogmatically? And uh, these words from Hal's mouth to Bill's ears and Bill's mouth to my ears. And I think I'm reporting accurately. He said, Hal said, I read a lot, I studied a lot, I read a lot, I studied a lot more, I made charts, I made graphs, I read a lot, I studied a lot, did a whole lot more, and then I picked one. And I must admire how Lindsay for picking the one that he knew would sell books. But not denying the good, I can think of folks I know who came to Christ through that book. That book and that dogmatism on all those details was an incredible distraction for the church in America that was looking out there to when it was going to happen instead of looking at Jesus' warnings for how do we stay faithful now. And how do we both be aware of what's going on in a world that is going to come to an end in judgment? And how do we not talk about philosophies and condemn people because they're in groups, but love people and talk with them knowing we are as much in need of a shepherd as they are, and we ought be humbler than them. So whether you're an insider or an outsider to the faith, I hope you hear me. Uh, I want no arrogance from my mouth or from the church of Jesus Christ. The only issue is whether Jesus is indeed who he says he is. And the church doesn't make him that way or not make him that way. So this parable is not a detailed allegory. So much has been written about it as if it was. But it's simply built around the idea of a wedding ritual that points to readiness and to joy. Uh, the bride and her beloved bridegroom who's coming uh, think Song of Songs and some of the language in it uh, as the bride waits for her bridegroom. Uh, worship team, thank you for the songs this morning uh, that help set the frame of our thinking. And the parable's meaning is about having mind, will, and affections prepared for the bridegroom. I'm going to move through this very quickly. Weddings, suppers, and banquets are often on Jesus' mind. Uh, Luke 14 as a wedding banquet, a wedding, uh, talks about a wedding and then a great banquet. Uh, John's gospel begins with the need for more wine at a wedding, which points to the ultimate wine of Jesus' blood and the passage from Revelation that uh, we had read this morning, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven and its bridegroom, King, who's coming first by his Spirit poured out as he ascends into heaven bodily and then in fullness when he returns. Thirdly, it was normal for those who waited for the bridegroom's party to arrive. Uh, it was usually the bridegroom's party that came, and often at night, from the bridegroom's house to get the bride and her helpers and take them back to the bridegroom's house for the celebration, the service, the party. 
And so that's probably the picture that is in Jesus' mind, though he doesn't go into a lot of detail. They're going back to the bridegroom's house for the festivities. That certainly fits the fact that Jesus will ultimately take us home to his house. By the way, none of you have houses big enough. He's going to take us to his. And the attendants, both the brides and the bridegrooms who come with him, uh, if it's night, as it often was, had to have lamps uh, or torches that needed oil either to refill the portable type of lantern that they would carry or to re-soak the cloth that uh, wrapped around the torch pole. And this was part of the task and the profession, to shed light on the bridegroom and his glory. As there's excitement about his coming and all that it means and what's going to be new with a new family and uh, most likely new children and the work of God from Genesis uh, being fulfilled. And in the church, we see the fruitfulness of those of us who take Jesus, our bridegroom, as our bride and we bear fruit and sometimes spiritual children of his by his spirit. Uh, there's a lot of partying going on. And without getting lost in all the allegorizing, uh, the melodic line, the biblical context here, tell us that this parable is about faithfulness, devotion, not to an earthly alone bridegroom, but to the coming king as bridegroom to his people, his church. And this should help you drop away concerns that don't fit. I bet if I ask for hands, I'm not going to. Some of you have thought this or had this question before or read something about this text that asked the question, uh, such as why are the five who have the oil so stingy? I think Jesus wants us to ask that question. And then remember, whose parable is it? Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's saying there's a huge problem with those who didn't bring oil. Because this picture of a parable is about devotion and delight and prepared faithfulness. If you're going to have a heart prepared for the ultimate bridegroom, you don't borrow it at the last minute. You nurture it. It's a matter of identity. It's a matter of what Jonathan Edwards called blood earnestness in affection. I think he uses that word blood because of the cross. It's an earnestness of the affections that's trained. And the world is trying to lead our affections away from our Creator and the Savior, Redeemer we need, but we must move in that direction. Deep affections, not just a knowledge or a decision, a choice of the will, but a rudder of deep-rooted affection that celebrates the one who above all needs to be celebrated. And the five wise virgins say, we will not let the light that will cause the bridegroom to shine go out. We brought the, the light that is in our hearts to honor him. If you have time, go get prepared. But they find out they didn't have time to prepare their hearts because the door was closed. And Jesus is saying what he says in other parables here. There will be a time when the door closes. 
and we don't choose it. But the bridegroom above all needs to be celebrated. That's what this parable is about. And the wise virgins, virgins are the ones who want to celebrate him. Uh, I remember so well with my uh, late friend in Uganda, Bishop John Lokwango, made six trips over there. Uh, I remember uh, with my partner buying a bull for a church celebration. We had Ugandan barbecue. I'll never forget this small pickup truck with this giant bull in the back end with a guy sitting with it with a rope around its neck. I thought, that don't look safe. (laughs) And then watching them prepare the bull, draining the blood. It took all day and part of the next morning for the celebration we would have after the worship service in this church of 12, 1400 in eastern Uganda as we preached and taught and sang about Jesus to then have a party Afterwards, John knew how to celebrate Jesus. The all-night prayer meetings of that church were a wonder to me of reality, love, devotion, and dependence. So many of them didn't have much, and even John, who was wealthy by the standards of many people with this big church, uh, his little compound, uh, which is where the church originally met a couple blocks away, every time I went over there, they were deciding whether they paid the water bill or the electric bill that month. The little guest house I stayed in was uh, a Motel 2 or 2.5. Think Motel 6, if you don't understand what I'm saying. Because sometimes there was no water, we had to carry it in, and other times there was no electricity. No electricity meant no fans. That's not good. But out of that church... In about 30 years, 150 church planters found and sent out in Kenya, in Uganda, in Rwanda. From little churches that just had little half walls of straw around the sides to keep the animals out and and a roof to uh, a few nicer buildings, but three quarters of the pastors couldn't earn their living of the church. But more than anything else, they knew about devotion to Jesus. They just really wanted to learn the Word, which is why we were there. They knew they didn't know it well. They were humble. We ought to be humble. We're too distracted. We use the lack of being discipled uh, that has produced so many untrustworthy bridegrooms and brides in our day that our culture is caving in on believing marriage, believing in marriage. I want to say to you, it is not the Spirit of God that is teaching us to be down on marriage. The Spirit of God would teach us to be down on us and how foolish we are. To not work on our characters and our hearts and our devotion to do what we know our children need. Instead, we tear our children apart and send more and more of them to psychiatrists and psychologists and think everything's still fine. I want to go, what? What? The talking heads on TV, my wife would tell you, uh, I almost have to leave the room every time any news channel is on. I don't care which one it is. Because they say this stuff about what's going on, and I see no connections to what's crushing lives. It becomes news entertainment and distraction. Note the final verses of the parable. And while they were going 
to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who went in, who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came in, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, you know either the day or the hour. We're talking about being wise, not foolish. Believing, receiving, delighting in the coming king. Need to be really quick with this. We're going to collapse it. Just want to turn the frame a little bit on what this parable is telling us. Uh, And it's printed on your outline, a few sentences from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Because what we're talking about is what is saving faith. What is the kind of faith that doesn't get the door shut on you? And it's all of grace. It has nothing to do with works. But the confession, this is one of my favorite paragraphs in the confession. Chapter 14 of Saving Faith, section 2. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. By virtue of the covenant of grace. That by virtue of the covenant of grace means if God hadn't started a covenant with His people all through Scripture, but the ultimate covenant in Christ. It's all grace. He started it. He completes it. He completes both sides of the covenant. It's all of grace. The offer is there. But the principal acts that flow out of that active grace are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ for three things, justification, sanctification, and eternal life. And I don't have time to parse this out, but please note the grammar in the confession is very terse and tight. That means accepting Christ alone for justification, for sanctification, and eternal life. Receiving Christ alone for justification, for sanctification, and for eternal life. And resting on Christ alone for justification, for sanctification, for eternal life. All of it, all of Christ, applies to all three. It's not simply acknowledging intellectually that Jesus is who He says He is. It's not praying a Jesus prayer or going forward in a service receiving Christ, but it's resting on Christ today, tomorrow, forever. An ongoing pathway all motivated and energized by grace. The oil for your lamp is all of grace. You can't get it anywhere else than from Jesus delighting in Him and leaning on Him and drawing your life for Him, from Him and for Him. It's costly grace, costly obedience. God's giving His Son as our ransom price, our leaning on it, wanting to be merciful to our neighbors because we know that mercy, as we said last week. We ought to learn to create wonder. We'll have to talk about it another time. Stephen led us into it this morning in talking about the delight in C.S. Lewis's wonderful words that we delight in such small things. But too often we talk about uh, obedience and the Lord's coming and commandments as if it's not a party. It's serious and, and, and there's dark times that we need to face. Leslie Newbegin uh, wrote uh, a number of years ago that the way we talk about Christ's commands, quote, tends to make mission or missions a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, you get another impression, quote, 
Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact, Newbigin said. We were feasting that Sunday morning at Tororo Pentecostal Church. Yes, I worshipped with and in some ways as a Pentecostal and preached like one. But it was a celebration and that bull gave his life because John Laquango knew that it would mean something incredible for us in the midst of all the teaching about the nature of Christ and the person of Christ, the nature of God that they so desperately needed to make it a celebration. And that morning and at conferences, I I was at first amazed at how the pastors and elders who came, sometimes 20, sometimes two or 300 at a time, uh, and we'd provide meals, and, and they would take the kind of plates we use at picnics and they would fill them this high. It took me a little while to realize it was because uh, that was about three or four days food for them, for many of them. And John wanted to make a connection between the richness of the Word of God and feasting on that richness and the generosity of brothers to brothers. He wanted it to be a pointer to full stomachs and rich fellowship, but that Jesus himself, even when you don't have the physical food, is our food, that we have a bridegroom who not only is our food, but who feeds us. And we love to go to weddings if we're smart because we care about the bride and the groom and what it can bring to them. But believers know that that's just a pointer. By the way, I just helped you interpret Ephesians 5 about the mystery of Christ and his love for the church. Explode that image into the beauty of your Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be the one who gets to be married to Him. And I hope the husbands in this room are praying, oh Lord, make me more like Jesus for my wife if you're married. And if you're thinking about getting married, that applies to you too. Amen. Amen.